This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Sometimes needing new tires can catch us by surprise. That's why tire power gives you the power of zip pay and zip money. You can get what you need now, get back on the road safely, and pay for it later. Terms and conditions apply. So visit tirepower.com.au or call 13 21 91. Tennis Direct are Australia's favourite online tennis store with fast delivery and great prices. Free delivery on orders over $150. Just visit their website, tennisdirect.com.au and you can get a 10% discount store-wide. Just use the promo code FIRSTSERVE10. That's FIRSTSERVE10. Hello and welcome to the very first episode of Season 2 of Aussies Only. It's your host, Jed Zetzer, and today I'm joined by a very special guest to kick off the second season of the show. Todd Lay became the youngest ever athlete to sign with sports management giant IMG. Based at the famed Nick Bolateri Tennis Academy in Florida, Todd was one of the most promising up-and-coming tennis prodigies on the planet. From the outside, it would appear that Todd was living the dream, but behind the scenes, so much was simmering away and Todd was struggling to deal with the extreme lifestyle he had been exposed to at such a young age, as well as having to deal with a tennis parent. Today, Todd joins us to reveal all the details of what I can only describe as a roller coaster of a journey. Before we get into it, remember to subscribe to The First Serve on your preferred podcast platform. Let's get into the show. Welcome to Aussies Only, the first serve's deeper look inside the game at home, talking to those inside and outside the tram lines. Todd Lay, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Ah, pleasure. Todd, you became the youngest ever athlete to sign with IMG, and that's what a lot of people would think of when they hear your name, but there's so much more to your story, and I think it's only appropriate we kick off the show where it all started for you. Can you tell us about your upbringing and do you have a first tennis memory? No, I'm still kind of trying to make sense of all of it, really. I guess I grew up in Adelaide. Like I remember bits and pieces, but I actually had quite sort of a disassociative childhood where um, I only remember certain parts and, and sort of have missed a lot of huge chunks in it. But I was kind of a pretty obsessive kind of kid that felt like I didn't really fit in most places. So when I found something that I liked, I wanted to kind of do it a lot. And I just remember always kind of having a tennis racket playing alone and just doing it really for hours. Um, so for me, it was something that I could kind of do to occupy myself. And then it just kind of turned out that I was sort of half decent at it. And with the amount of time that I was sort of putting into it, yeah, I, I just took to things that I could kind of do on my own. And um, yeah, so it was kind of like, that's how I rolled. And then I think sort of my dad must have caught wind of something about how that I was, you know, pretty decent about it. And yeah, I mean, the abnormal became pretty, you know, pretty normal, pretty quick. And um, I don't know, it just, it just kind of really grew momentum of its own, like went from my thing to kind of our thing. And um yeah, before you know it, it was, it just basically ruled my, not just my life, but my whole family's life. It was, um, I became kind of the center of attention 
and the center of the universe really. And um, yeah, it, it, it just really shaped my family and, and sort of my life from basically day dot. I, I don't, yeah, so that, that's pretty well it. Yeah, I mean, it must have been quite difficult growing up in the limelight. It's quite different to most kids that age. Let's fast forward a few years. You become the youngest athlete to sign with the sports management giant IMG, and you're based at the Nick Boletari Academy in Florida, which was home of some of the best players that we've seen. This must have been an absolute whirlwind for you. Do you remember how that all happened and how it came about? Mm, no, not really. But I remember vague parts of it about that I, I went over and played the Eddie Hur, which was Eddie Hur and Orange Bowl, which was two of the biggest tournaments in the world. And I was a, I was a year out of my age. And um, yeah, I kind of started off there, sort of in the backcourts, not really noticed. And then I ended up winning the Eddie Hur singles, doubles, and mixed doubles quite sort of comfortably. And um, yeah, I sort of went from unknown to known pretty quick. And uh, from there, things just kind of, I don't know. It was just like I got the key to the city kind of thing and um, had a limousine sort of rock up at my door the next day to, you know, come and meet Nick. And I was kind of taken under their wing and made it seem as if I'd been there for years when really I'd only been there for a week and a half. And, um, you know, IMG really was just like a compound for sporting extremists, really. It was just there was all sorts of people there. And, um, yeah, it was like... I don't know, it was like Disney World in a, way, in a way, like, you know, you'd heard of all the greats that had come out of there and that, and um, it seemed a bit surreal being there, but, um, I mean, and then all of a sudden I won that, so then, um, I, yeah, I was able to train there and I was signed, um, so I signed for five years and I was able to use the facilities um, basically whenever I wanted, and um, yeah, it was just an interesting sort of five years really because I went from being sort of pretty hot property, you know, and, and then throughout my career, I kind of, there's those peaks and flows. And, um, you know, I, you, you kind of take the bumps of that as well. Like there's new kids coming in and it's just a pretty, pretty full on dynamic really once you get out of it and realize how the whole thing works. Um, it's pretty dangerous in a way, you know, because I don't know, it has a lot there, but also on the other hand, it's like you can kind of easily get chewed up and spat out. And, um, you know, on, on the way out kind of thing. And that's, that was kind of my experience really. Um, and I don't know, I don't know. It was just a very crazy kind of upbringing where you were just very, you know, guarded. It, it was, um, it was very odd. Like I, because I was with, I was signed with IMG, I got, um, we got sort of certain rights and, and certain benefits for that. So I got, it was weird. I was 12 years old. I was living alone by myself in this villa that I was terrified of living in. I, was, I developed like a lot of sort of sleeping issues. And um, I don't know. I just, I, I was away from my family. Like it, it, it was just very, very odd, extreme sort of living that. Um, it just kind of became normal to me, but I was really sort of struggling underneath it all, but didn't really know. I didn't really have the language or know how to speak about it, to tell you the truth. So there was a bit going on, even though I was doing well, it was like the better I got, the worse I kind of went sort of uh, psychologically, I'd say. So did you have any family members over there with you? No, my dad was my, basically my coach. Um, he would come for a bit and then he would leave. But because obviously they had to work and, and stuff like that. But no, um, 
No, not really. I pretty well spent the whole time there because people would come in and, in and out of the IMG dorm and, um, you know, they would kind of use it as a base for two weeks, three weeks, whatever, and then go off and play. And they'd have family that were kind of near. But because I was from Australia, you know, it's such a, such a pretty far trek. It was like either the family was going to move over there, which my mom and sister weren't keen on, um, and fair enough. But, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I just was there for a lot of the time I was alone. And it was just very, you know, tennis is already a pretty isolated sport, but especially the environment with how competitive it was, um, in, in a way you want kind of your rivals and your peers to kind of not do well because you kind of want to be ahead of them to, to get certain opportunities and that. And it was just a very sort of spiritually bankrupt sort of environment where it's a very two-faced um, I don't know. It, it's just, you know, you, there was no real camaraderie. You wanted to see players kind of, you wanted to wish them the worst in a way. And once you kind of got a feel of that, it was just, I don't know, it's a heavy environment to kind of live in as a, as a 12, you know, to grow up there. Um, and then all of a sudden sort of re-enter a new world at 17, 18. It was just like, I, I had some pretty, pretty full on settings, I guess. So Todd, you were living by yourself from the age of 12 on the other side of the world in a little villa uh, at a tennis Big villa. Yeah. Massive, massive villa, man. I mean, it sounds, I mean, it sounds good. You're in a massive villa, but it almost sounds like a dangerous upbringing at 12 years old. You're living by yourself. I mean, can you quite believe that that was the case? And do you think that 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 would happen in this day and age? Well, tennis gets, represented i think in the public and by society is like when you tell them that you're touring or you're away doing this they're like oh that sounds fantastic because their job is basically locked away in a cubicle from nine to five and they you know they have to up like it's just a very different upbringing so it's kind of it's misperceived in a way so i always felt that very weird when people were like they would kind of glamorize my life and i i was like you have no idea what i'm really going through um so in a way, it just kind of hid in plain sight underneath this false perception that people have of tennis. Um, but looking back on it, it was extremely dangerous because I already had like, I had a very like, I was doing, you know, ridiculous amounts of hours on court from a very young age. I was already sort of developing a sleep issue where I had sort of insomnia. I was sleepwalking in the middle of the night. A couple of times I woke up in the pool uh, in the main sort of complex and people found me brought me back to my room. Um, you know, I was, I was basically having a mental breakdown at a very early age. Um, and yeah, it was, it was, um, it was really terrifying. And, and for me, it's, it's something that's kind of latched on and I still, I still struggle with it today to tell you the truth. It's not something that's just kind of vanished. I've had to sort of, um, what did I do? I, I, I chose, I guess, or unconsciously had these coping mechanisms that I, I had to rely upon to try to somewhat soothe um, what was going on internally. And what, no, it, was, it wasn't a picnic. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a bit of a nightmare you couldn't wake up from. Uh, Todd, that all unraveled for you at a young age, on the other side of the globe, away from family. And as you've mentioned, you had a tough experience with your father as your coach. It sounds like a recipe for disaster. It's just a combination, really, looking back on it now, it's a combination of about, you know, maybe 12 things and, um, and some more important than others. But, you know, the expectation of, I, I felt like 
I had at a very young age, you know, because I'm from Adelaide, they were comparing me with Hewitt. I was training with Hewitt's coach and people were telling me that I'm supposed to be better than him. Well, I mean, basically trying to make it as a tennis player, it's like winning the lottery as it is, let alone telling, you know, going around being paraded publicly that, you know, I was going to be someone, you know, at around 15, 16, that was kind of my aim. The, the, it was just really, really uh, dangerous goal setting, I guess you would say. And then, um, you know, I, I, I had a lot of fear. I had a lot of fear around um, not performing and, and, and basically not, not accomplishing what I'd set out. And then um, on top of that, you know, I, I was also a very insecure, sensitive kind of child that I, I had to sort of, you know, tennis is a pretend act in a lot of ways where I, I was a little bit uh, puzzled as to when, you know, when am I going to get to kind of express and be sort of authentic? I, I always felt like I had to act and there was this mental toughness kind of thing that was really sort of distilled upon me. Yet inside I was emotionally kind of really um you know simmering and i i don't know i it was just a lot of things especially spending a lot of time alone not really having that connection having my dad as my as my coach slash parent um and then with a lot of fear and it's just just a very extreme environment you know that's a perfect perfect uh recipe for someone to kind of self-destruct really yeah it, it absolutely sounds like it uh todd do you pinpoint an exact moment where you feel like it sort of hit an all-time low for you? Was it was it over there in in the States or was it maybe when you got back home afterwards? Was there a moment where you actually knew that you couldn't go on anymore and you needed a change? Yeah. I, well, I mean, it seemed like the lows just kept getting lower in a way. I mean, tennis is a game where you lose a lot and, um, you know, you have to develop somewhat of a healthy relationship with losing because you pretty well you know, take an L every week. And um, I wasn't very good at that. And, um, you know, yeah, it was like rock bottom kind of had a trap door in a way. I just kept falling through lower and lower. And and um, I, I when things got, I don't know, it, it was just tennis was just such a weird game in a way that I felt like I kind of gained some momentum when I was about 16 earlier here in the country. And I don't know, it was like... Um, all of a sudden, you know, three months later, I, I, I couldn't do anything. Um, and then I, I kind of had to get my dad to come over. I had a shocking trip to Europe where, um, I don't know, it was like an achievement sometimes just getting to the courts, you know, let alone getting there and, and trying to win. Um, kind of roughing it a lot. And, yeah, I don't know, just knowing that the finances were running low and, um, you know, people just becoming more aware of the sacrifice that people are making for you. And when you're not kind of performing, that pressure cooker goes right up. And I didn't really know how to handle it. Um, I didn't really know. I, I, I just had absolutely no idea um, about where to voice that. And um, I don't know. I was looking, I guess I was looking for, um, I was looking for validation for the suffering that I was going through to kind of be like, yeah, this is, normal this is this this is that yet i i kind of wasn't getting that and for me i had a i had a trip that ended up in america where i, I think i was playing qualities of the future or a challenger or something and um you know i wasn't playing very well and uh it's typical you know 
me and my old man were kind of going at it through the fence. Um, and I, I just was playing like a dog. And um, I ended up losing sort of seven, six in the third. We've had some words after it, um, kind of got a bit physical in front of people, which was, it, it was just continual straws, really. It was pretty humiliating. One, that I lost there, I felt like I should have won. And then two, people seeing it. And I was just getting to that age where I just about had enough, really. And um, we're kind of waiting for the... Um, we're waiting for the courtesy bus to go back to the hotel. And um, yeah, it got pretty physical and, and, and um, not so much physical. It was, um, it was just emotionally draining. I was just, I was just done. And um, yeah, I just, I just basically, I think I left my bag there and I just walked off. I just walked off into the night for about five or six hours. Um, and I remember it was raining. I was in like Louisiana or somewhere down South in America and um it just hit me that I, I i just literally just can't do this anymore um so yeah that was pretty um that for me was the straw that broke the camel's back i didn't know how to go about it i didn't know how to say i was done so basically i uh i faked an injury the next week and then from there uh i think i was back home and then once i got back home i, I pretty well classify my tennis as over after that um just because I know that I made a sort of a mental decision that was like, you know what? Um, no, thanks. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you felt like there was so much pressure on you that you couldn't even turn to the people around you to tell them that you didn't want to compete anymore. Well, that, that wasn't even an option. You know, when you do something so wholeheartedly, it's like there was never an option of like, Hey, maybe we don't do this when you're that, in something that's kind of consumed you for so long it's like you don't even know that there's another way of living this was my life since i was you know as far as i can remember it was my family's it was my dad's um i don't know it was it was tennis was just that was all i knew so i that didn't even ever seem like an option this was just my fate and that was going to be the way that i was going to go and do do life so and I think a lot of tennis players kind of have that who have been through similar kind of situations, um, you know, when they've kind of almost had a racket in their hand out of the womb. It's like that I, I began to rebel and kick back at the circumstances and situations that I'd been held sort of captive in for too long. And I just really, I was just kind of symbolizing my disgust with people with my behavior as I started to kind of rebel. And I had a lot of identity issues. I went from dressing like, like a rapper to a wrestler, to a, like, I, I was, I was all over the place. Um, you know, I, I had no identity. My, my identity was known throughout my family as tennis boy. Um, that's what everyone called me bullies as well, who were at school. It was like that, that was just my identity. And um, I was kind of really trying to push back at that. And I wanted to see that, that identity kind of burn. And I did a pretty good job of that really for the last 10 or so years, I would say I've, I've really just kind of, had a lot of sort of, you know, I think it was injustice in a way. And, um, but sooner or later, you've got to start taking some responsibility and it's just taken me a long time, I guess, you know, like I've just kind of woken up in a way. Yeah. I mean, Todd, it sounds like such an incredibly tough position that you were in when you made that decision that you were done playing, what came next for you? What came post your playing career? Well, that, that, was, that was the problem. I, I, I didn't just walk out of there. Well, I did for a couple of months. I kind of had a pink cloud moment where I felt like, you know, because I sort of when I noticed when I was playing towards the end, I was somewhat 
desiring a normal life. I remember watching the shows like The O.C., and Dawson's Creek and that and kind of looking at these characters, these kind of regular characters. And I was like, oh, that, that kind of life looks somewhat, you know, I was somewhat admiring it. And then once I got a taste of it myself, I just had no idea what to do. I'd always, um, very simple things had always been taken care of for me. So, you know, I was really emotionally, um, I guess, uh, I, I don't like to use the word abuse, but I guess it is really. And then, but on top of that, I was also very privileged and given a lot. So to me, all of a sudden the money had run out and I needed to make a living on my own. And I didn't know how money worked. I didn't know how, I, I just had absolutely no idea. I tried, I didn't want to get back into the tennis because I could easily tennis coach, but the wound was just so sore and raw that I just despised the whole thing. So I tried to somewhat find um, a job that I could do. And I had, you know, these skills that I had, I just, none of them would transfer into any of the jobs. I'd played Wimbledon and been number one in the world yet when it came to, pay, you know, hanging up a pair of jeans, uh, it didn't, it didn't kind of, it didn't cross over. So I found that journey or that, that kind of um, transition into normal life. I found it extremely difficult. Um, I ended up working at a laundromat for a period of time, worked behind a bar, um, I was, you know, where was I? I was working, I went through heaps of places, clothing places, but you know, these were very short, short stays. I was getting sacked quite, quite, uh, quite frequently. And, um, it was just because my, also my social settings, I didn't, I didn't know how to socialize. I didn't know how to, um, all of the stuff really from tennis, I felt like, cause I'd been quite sort of isolated. I didn't quite know how to adjust back in and that, that process was was more painful than my tennis of what I can remember. And um, yeah, it, it's, it's still an ongoing process of me somewhat developing skills that tennis kind of just didn't teach me. Yeah, it's, it sounds like a recipe for disaster sort of being thrown in at such a young age that you don't, you're not able to develop the social skills in the real world and then actually really understand what it is like to live in the real world. I mean, you, you're in that tennis bubble and that's all you know mm. and then, I guess it comes to a close so quickly and, you know, how, how do you react to that? I was totally embarrassed and I was humiliated to kind of show my face back at any sort of tennis event or anything like that. Like all of a sudden it was like, I just entered the tennis witness protection program was never seen again. And um, I was, I just had so much shame revolving around that. And then, um, you know, I remember seeing people somewhat do normal things in life. And I just didn't know how they did it. I, I didn't know how you pulled that off. Um, it was like I didn't have the, the manual or something. And I found it quite, I was really sort of annoyed how I could see people do these things. And yet I was, I was unable to do them. It made me quite, um, I felt demoralized in a way. Todd, what was your schooling like during tennis? Did you do any online school or was? No, well, again, like I did correspondence from year eight and um. I mean, yeah, it, it was crazy. It was, I, I basically didn't do anything. I did half a year, a year of 10. No, no, no. I finished, I finished year 10. I think I, I was supposed to go on a Davis cup trip over to Europe and I got held back because I was 16 or 18 weeks sort of behind and bribed a guy to do my work. And, and that was as far as my schooling went. I was doing correspondence, you know, okay. it, it, back, back then that the internet and that wasn't really, 
happening and I was kind of supposed to be doing it from Adelaide. The, the whole thing was just a mess. So, no, I, I not really, no. Is that something that you feel uh, perhaps if you had had that schooling that it would have maybe helped you post-tennis? I mean, it sounds like yeah, I, it sounds yeah. like when you were thrown into the tennis bubble that it was just tennis, tennis, tennis and nothing else really mattered. Mm. Well, tennis kind of, I mean, sorry, school seems to socialize people a lot more with my personality i wasn't much of a people person as i was but i know school at least would give you a break from just tennis and it's like i'm coaching some kids at the moment and they're pulled out of school at a very early age and it's like you can just see that you know them really once people decide to go all in at tennis it just adds layers to the uh the pressure that's on these kids' shoulders. So for me, yeah, I think it would have it would have helped me socially, um, you know. But I think the tennis world just struggles to provide that as well because it's like, you know, there's 70 spots for people to basically get in to make a living off this, and with those odds, it's like it's me against me. So the friendships and and things that I develop with people within the industry. And I became pretty aware to it. It was like, it was pretty fake and pretty false stuff. So it's like, you don't really get to learn how to be vulnerable and develop sort of meaningful relationships. So I guess in school, when you're kind of more, you know, there's no real reason to kind of somewhat um, be against someone. Yeah, I, I think it would have, I think it would have helped, but I don't know how long I would have stayed in anyway. So yeah. I know this might sound bizarre, but you've now gone down the coaching path. Do you feel like mm. your experiences almost have helped shape you to be a better coach that you know what not to do? Yeah. Yes, it, it definitely has. Yet yeah, I don't know how uh, usable those skills are as well as people don't really seem that interested in hearing about what not to do and how not to do it because I think everyone thinks that they have the recipe of how to do it when I think I would almost, I think there's a real argument to say that no one really knows how to make a tennis player in a way because it's just, it's just that difficult, but there are a million ways how not to do it. Yet people seem to think that they're special and they're different than everyone else and that they know what they're doing. And I don't think they really want to hear it a lot. So it's annoying because I feel like I've got a lot of stuff, but yet no one really wants to sometimes hear it. So I haven't found, I guess I haven't found a platform or a way or very many parents. I mean, it's not the kids, it's the parents who aren't really, um, they're not open-minded to it. They think that, you know, they, they know what's going on and, and that's their first time on the Ferris wheel kind of thing. Um, and yeah, so it's a bit it's a bit annoying to kind of know what what you do and then not be able to use it really. Yeah, absolutely, Todd. When did you sort of make that decision that you wanted to enter the coaching landscape, and did it bring up old any old wounds re-entering the tennis bubble? Yeah, for sure. I, I've always kind of coached. I coached since I was seventeen part time on the side because I didn't really have any other way of making money. I tried to somewhat. Um, yeah, I tried to not, <laughs> I tried to not ever classify myself as a tennis coach and I still kind of don't just because of the stigma that it has still kind of somewhere in me that it's a failed 
you're a failed tennis player. So yeah, it, 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 I don't like the, the label of it. Um, and yeah, I, I do find it very disturbing and distressing to see a lot of these kids go through similar sort of circumstances as I am. And, um, you know, people just be, you know, really unaware or thoughtless when it comes to what, you know, th- these kids are going through a lot and there's a lot on their shoulders and it seems very dangerous and unsupported by, you know, certain people and parents. And, and yeah, it, the whole thing is, is quite disturbing, but I need to try to somewhat engage and then disengage with it as much as I can. Otherwise, for me, it, it, it's, um, I'm very touchy to it and sensitive to it, I guess you could say. No, absolutely. I, I, and I can understand that. Uh, so, Todd, talk to us about Athletes Association. This is a project that you've sort of got bubbling away. Can you tell us mm. about it and what you're doing there? Yeah, it's sort of like um, what it is, is to me, again, like I've just noticed and I've, I've sort of been touring and, and whatever and, I've just noticed about how sort of dangerous um, this stuff is and then how sort of dangerously sort of unsupported these athletes are. Um, so what it is, is I've, I've been um, a part of certain programs myself that have helped me sort of turn around my life and something that I'm still involved in today for part of my mental health and, and just for, yeah, my, my, my life to run as well as possible. And um I'm kind of trying to somewhat emulate something very similar to that. It's, it's a program where athletes can kind of serve each other um, in meetings and come together and um, from all sort of all sorts of sports and be able to share their sort of experiences in, in their sport and what they've kind of gone through. Um, And it's something that's kind of not doesn't run with any sort of organizing body. It's not part of tennis, not part of swimming, I don't really kind of want anyone to have their hands in it so they can kind of have an agenda on. Cause I think when athletes, um, when they kind of get help by sporting bodies, they kind of have an agenda because they want you to play well because they want to make money off you. And you kind of feel manipulated and used in a way. This is kind of a thing that runs underneath every sport that can help players, give them the freedom to be able to express certain things that's going on with them Hear Other people share about the same experiences can be really sort of cathartic. Um, can kind of connect with other people who are going through similar things, even if they're still playing. Uh, it'll help them sort of readjust to life, having that support there, knowing that other people are going through the same thing. Um, it's sort of, yeah, it's pro bono. I want, like no one's sort of taken any money out of it. It's just there for athletes when they've sort of been put on the scrap heap from sports to be able to go somewhere and um, hopefully be able to rebuild and, and connect with other athletes. I just think it's something that, I mean, especially in tennis with it being an individual sport um, and how isolated players are, it's, it's desperately needed. And, you know, I, I just don't see anything out there like it. So I, I'm, I'm pretty passionate about that. It's in the works of trying to get it up at the moment. I wanted to start it pretty locally just to see how it works. Um, and, yeah, I just, I just think it's a really sort of good, good thing to do. You're also writing a book can you tell us about that have you got a title for it i know last time we heard yeah. from you hadn't had a title yet but what what is the book about and are you putting you know a date on it that you'd like it to hit the shelves yeah i i, I want to get it out by the end of the year it's called how to f it up and um i just didn't want to say that on the radio before but 
it's a, it's not a self-help book. It's a self-destruct book. So that means that if you follow all the things that are in there, you're a hundred percent guaranteed to destroy your kids tennis and, and possibly destroy their lives. It's a book about, yeah, it's about the common threads that I see. And it's a, you know, throughout tennis where you can really sort of go down the wrong path. And, um, it, it highlights the ridiculousness of, of some tennis players and tennis coaches. Um, yeah, the, some dangers. And, um, yeah, it has a bit of my own sort of experience in there as well with kind of what I went through, what I've seen from other players as well um, and families. And it's it just what it's doing is it's trying to paint the tennis world in a more accurate uh, picture. I just don't think it's painted accurately enough for – um, for the public, really, I think they have, they're really, there's misconceptions there about what these athletes actually go through and what their lives are like. Um, and for me, I'm trying to paint it more accurate and a more truthful version of that. So you're actually able to put two and two together about why these guys are actually behaving like that, maybe in the media or, or, or um, on TV when you see them. There's a bit more that goes on behind the surface than just a 21, 21 year old spoiled brat. Um, and, you know, I just think it needs to be done. And I, I think that, you know, kids getting into this, they, they don't know what they're getting in for. They don't know what they're getting themselves into. And then once you get to 17, 18, and you're like, oh, I, I didn't really know that I was signing up for this. It's like, you know, they've, they've, it, it's pretty rough in a way. And I think the parents have kind of somewhat pushed them into it. And it's kind of going behind the psyche of that, um, about why parents are doing this. Uh, it goes into the psyche of what actually goes on um, in players' more in, in my own experience, in my mind, and what I think goes on in other players' minds. Um, what can happen afterwards? And and yeah, it's just kind of diving more into articulating what actually goes on to create this kind of behaviour that people are a little bit puzzled to see. Um, so I'm trying to hit it from a lot of angles. It also details, uh, you know some extreme coping mechanisms that players take and, and um, after to be able to somewhat learn to live with life and, and how to kind of get yourselves out of that. Um, so I'm hitting it from a lot of different angles. It's got a lot in there and I want to basically have it, try to have it done by the end of the year. That sounds like it would be a captivating read and I'll definitely be lining up to purchase your book. Uh, Todd, you've also pitched a TV show can you tell us if you've got anything developing on that front? Yeah, it's called Tennis Parents. It's basically, again, I I was I started off with that, and um, that for me is again, it's doing the same thing. It's just showing. It's more loosely revolved around my life with my dad um, as a sort of an extreme tennis parent, and just what you go through touring and day to day family life. Um, and then, you know, when you don't make it and you see other people do, the comparisons, you know, you see someone make it and you don't and you're there working in the laundromat and they're, they're on TV. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's basically a show that, again, just goes a little bit deeper into what's going on. And um, I've pitched it to a couple of production companies who are really keen on it, yet it just wasn't the right timing. So I'm trying to get that. I'm trying to get this stuff sort of off the ground. I think there's definitely something in it. People are interested. They're, they're again, everyone's got an opinion on these guys that are in the, um, 
in the public, everyone wants to know, like, you know, they're, they're a hot topic of conversation. And I think that I've got something to be able to share about what's going on. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty passionate about it. I reckon there's, and I reckon a lot of players have kind of copped it for a long time, you know, like they get a fair whack from the media and the public and that. And um, I just think they've, been, they've, they've gotten a, a harsh whack. Just a quick one, I guess, for post your playing career, has there ever really been a moment since you've stopped playing professionally that you've thought perhaps you might want to give it another crack? I, I mean, I revisited it today. <laughs> like, it, it, it's an ongoing thing. It's not like, for me, it doesn't just, it hasn't just died, you know? Like, I haven't just walked away and been like, oh, I'll just put that over there in that shelf. It's something that is just always around for me. Um, and I'd kind of have to learn to live with that. And sometimes if it kind of gets stroked or, you know, I can sometimes inflate it, I guess, by playing too much tennis and doing that, which is, is really, it's like, you know, the shop's closed now and I kind of need to come to terms with that. So that's what I've also struggled with, with coaching and being involved in that. It's like, I kind of still have this idea in my head that I can do it. Yet I'm 33 years old and, um, and that ship's closed. So yeah, it's something that for me, I, I just have to learn to live with and come to terms with. And, um, you know, I, I think personally the struggles that I had after my, after my tennis, I was going to have anyway. So if I finished at 33, uh, that, that would have went for another 43. And, you know, so it's like I, I, I choose now to have a different perspective on it, which is something sort of for survival, I guess. But, yeah, it, it – it stings and doesn't sit well, let's put it that way. So, Todd, 2015, you opened the uh, Langman and Lay Elite Tennis Academy. Can you, yes. can you tell us about how that partnership came about and, uh, yeah, just how that all sort of came to life? Yeah. Um, well, Todd's my um, – he's basically like a brother, I guess you would say. He helped me a lot when I was um, – when I was playing and we became pretty well inseparable from a young age. Uh, once I stopped, I went off and coached sort of by myself and he was obviously working with, uh, he was working with Thanasi and doing his own club stuff. And then um, the stars, I guess, aligned in a way from me getting sacked from my coaching job. And uh, he was looking for someone to come and take over while he traveled with Thanasi. So we just kind of teed it up and, um, yeah, I think we've kind of missed the mark a little bit on things. Some things we've gotten right, but Todd and I work pretty well with each other. And I don't know, it's just, it's an interesting one trying to get into that elite side of coaching, um, especially for me as well, just with what it brings up and, um, you know, just, just the hassles of it, really. Um, it's like, I, I, I don't know, I, I still feel like I'm yet to kind of get a real good go with a player where, you know, you're able to somewhat pass your knowledge on without any sort of roadblocks in the way. It sort of gets to a point where you get that frustrated that, um, I don't know, it's, 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 it's difficult and challenging, but I do, love, I do enjoy really working with Todd and, um, yeah, it's good. Was there ever a moment where mm. you've witnessed something, whether it be on or off a tennis court, that's maybe uh, brought up some tough memories for you and you've actually sort of stepped in and said something maybe to a parent or a coach or 
someone involved with a player. Has that ever happened where you've actually stepped in and, and said something or maybe done something? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, again, like the stuff happened this morning, you know, today. But um, it's constant. When you're in that environment, people are pushing boundaries and they are wanting to, you know, they're, they're very demanding and they're imposing themselves on, you know, on innocent children. Um, and yeah, it, it, it kind of comes with the territory, man. It's not like, you know, it's, it's a very, it's a very competitive environment where people, once they start forking over um, hundreds of dollars a week, they're looking for a return on that investment. And if that kid's not performing the way they want, they're going to use the whip. Now, a lot of people just turned a blind eye to that and, um, some people go over and kind of try to educate, but you know, at the same time you want, you know, you go over to educate, you may get yourself a black eye. And I've experienced that with many sort of tennis parents where one day I, I said to this guy, I said, look, man, like you're out of here. Like I, I don't, I don't want you to come back. Anyway, he's come up and sort of head butted me. He had a skipping rope on him as well. When he started lassoing the wow. skipping rope and he was whipping me, um, and this was a full scene until the police came about, you know, 30, 45 minutes later, we had to cage this guy outside of the courts. He was wrestling with like another 19 year old player. It was, it was just unbelievable to see. And um, <laughs> I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of chilled out a lot. It's, it's chilled out a lot, but there's still, I've tried to implement this because I've always, I've, um, I've come up with this idea that I think having, you know, tennis parents on the court, is a real problem because it's like picking up the balls as the gateway drug to coaching. It's like, as soon as they get that pipe in their hand, they're kind of entitled to say what they think's going on. And all of a sudden they're running the lesson. And it's like, well, what, who's doing what job here? Um, so when you get your toes stepped on, you know, continually, I think trying to somewhat create some boundaries between, you know, but at the same time, it's like, it's a job and, and, um, I see why people don't, you know, they just let it go because at the same time they've got mortgages to pay and they want to do extensions out the back. So it's like, it's a difficult one to try to work through um, because obviously the parent is the one who's, you know, paying the bills yet. They're also the one who's getting in the road and wants to do the coaching. And they don't really want to hear your ideas about how to, how to parent their kids yet. They want to tell you how to coach the kid. So the whole dynamic's quite complex in a way. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's just crazy, really. It's crazy some of the stuff you see. And I, I see it on a weekly basis. You, you mentioned there that sort of sometimes the parents can, I guess, see their, their child as, as a commodity, I guess. Uh, Absolutely. Do you mind expanding on that and just sort yeah. of explaining, well, explaining to someone listening what that might mean? Well, I think when you when someone comes into the sport and they see um, their kid may have a bit of potential at it, all of a sudden it becomes apparent to the parent that there may be something in this. Um, so what happens very quickly is um, I just think once again, they're also they're handing over a lot of money. They're, they're aiming for the stars here. Um, and anything short of that is, uh, is a miss. So they're prepared to pretty well go to any lengths 
um, to try to get their kid to where they want to get them. And they're living an unlived life, which is their own. And they're living vicariously through their kid to try to get them to places where maybe they didn't go with their sporting career. There's a lot of ego involved. Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it doesn't, it's generally not coming from a nice place. And yeah. that kind of, that kind of conditional love is very damaging to a kid. And um, they know that they're kind of a monkey in a cage and they're there to tap dance. And all of a sudden, once they get to a certain age, they start to question why are they doing this and who are they doing it for? And like I'm saying, even in my, my sort of own experience, it was like, this is just what you do. Um, there was no option, no choice really in it. I chose to do it at the start. But once you come so far as well, and you know, you're, you're eight, nine, 10 years into this, people just don't want to turn around and go back or stop. They want to see it through to the end. And that's kind of what you see in tennis. You see people, they push it that far that all of a sudden their kids burn out and then all of a sudden they just drop off the face of the earth. You never hear or see from them ever again. It's sad, really, man. Like, it's like that kid then has to sort of, they have to live with that for the rest of their life. Um, and I think tennis has a way of all of a sudden parents can have a real adverse reaction to the competitive environment. It brings out a real, a real dark side to people um, that, you know, unfortunately gets played out through their children. And that, that's a very ugly, ugly story, which tennis has had, you know, this has been going on for tennis for years. And I just think that really it needs to be pointed out more. It's like everyone's having a go at the players, but it's like, hold on a second. What about the parents? It's like, what, say, yeah. what about that? And I think sometimes as well that people can forget that the person actually has a life beyond just being a tennis player. <laughs> that's, that's right. No, that, but that's, that's not in the equation at all. Like your well-being and, and um, like to me, people only ever spoke to me about my tennis. It infuriated me. It was like I, I, I rebelled basically against this tennis identity that was like, it was very much to me, I, I kind of relate it to like these sort of childhood actors in Hollywood who all of a sudden uh, are getting coached by their parents to be these actors and they, you know, they all of a sudden make it big time in Hollywood and then they just, they just go off the rails. And it's like because to me it was the same kind of thing. I was like, what, what's going on here? Where, where am I in all this? Um, and... I just wanted to, I wanted to see that tennis side of me burn because it was, um, it was like I couldn't, it was like I was going, even though I was getting a lot of attention, it was like I was completely unnoticed at the same time. You were getting all this attention, but it wasn't necessarily attention that you wanted. It was attention to your tennis, but not you as a human being. Absolutely, yeah. You mentioned before as well that, I guess parents want to be involved in coaching, mm. but the coach the coaches aren't involved in the parenting, mm. and that's where sort of things can get skewed. Do you think it is possible for a parent to be a coach and for the relationship to be a healthy one, or do you, or do you just think oh, that it's I mean, that it's a mix that just is a recipe for disaster, no matter what the situation is? This is the thing. It's like at what cost are you prepared? to do it at you know like what what are we aiming for what are we striving for it's like i ask this question a lot would you you know would you want a 17 year old 18 year old tennis freak who can't speak socially to anyone or do you want a 26 year old well-adjusted person who's making a decent living out of the sport but probably not in the media and, and creating headlines 
I ask that question all the time to tennis parents. Which one do you reckon they? Which one do you reckon they pick? They pick the other one. Yeah, yeah. A lot of the times, like they don't exactly say it. They try to swerve away from it, but they're they're going for the. They want the the glitz and glamour and the high life that they think that tennis kind of gives you, and it's happening all the time. So, for especially, I mean, yeah, that's, that's the wrong one. <laughs> What's that? that? That's the wrong one. You don't want. You don't no, want. No, that's what it is. Again, yeah. it's like. But this is the thing, like in our sport, where for some reason society, it glorifies these 15, 16-year-old kids. It's like, wow, look at how good they are. But look how, look how unbalanced they are. Mm. It's like they're, you know, they're a stone throw away from basically self-destructing. But yet we're all sort of mesmerized by watching these kids do this incredible stuff. It's like it, it's kind of the way that society is wired. So I... I kind of do understand, but at the same time, it's like I had this guy the other day, right? And he said this to me. He goes, I'd prefer to see her burn out early than have her go nowhere later. And in a weird way, I kind of understood what he was saying, but at the same time, totally disgusted at what he was saying. But yet that's what tennis kind of promotes. It's like if he backs her into 25, 26, that's his superannuation done. But if he kind of sees that there's, you know, a little bit of light at around 15, 16, and she's really starting to make waves and that kind of thing by 17, 18. It's like that. It's a bit like gambling in a way. So yeah, it's really off. But to answer your question, do I think it can be done? Yeah, obviously it can be done. But I mean, this is the thing. I think that the parent needs to be parent, like the parent needs to be the parent and the coach needs to be the coach. Too many times the coach has to do the parenting because the parent's doing the coaching. It's like the whole thing's backwards. And um, I just think people need to think about at what cost are they prepared to try to do that at? Because chances are by doing it, what you generally do is jeopardize the relationship or at worst, blow it to smithereens. Like, you know, a, a lot of relationships do in tennis. This isn't, this isn't an unknown thing. This happens continually throughout tennis. So it's not as if it's new news. Do you know what I mean? Oh, I completely understand. It's, it's been going on for, for yes. It's been going on really since the beginning of the sport. That's that, that's right. But for me, it's like I don't know. I just I don't seem to hear enough about it. It's it's happening constantly. It was happening all the time at Boletari's on the tour. I mean, you know, it, it's riddled with it. Yeah, I don't think it gets enough light. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's dangerous. It's very very dangerous. I just want to steer away from tennis for a moment. I want to ask you, yeah. outside of tennis, what do you like doing? What are your hobbies? And what, what's, what's almost like a perfect weekend? What does it look like for you? <laughs> uh, it's changed a lot. I've, I've now live at a different pace than I used to. Uh, I've had to do that. Uh, otherwise, I wasn't going to be around for a while. Um, what is a perfect weekend? I'm still figuring that out, man. I'm still sort of figuring myself out a lot. Um, I, uh, I don't, again, with tennis, I didn't really have any hobbies or interests. People ask me, what do you like to do? And I said, I don't know. I don't know. There's a lot I don't know about myself that I'm, I'm slowly starting to learn. Um, I'm starting to get interest more in writing and creating. I want to be somewhat authentic and live a more of an authentic life and career if possible, not a job where I feel like I have to pretend and be fake. Um, I feel like that has kind of been on me for a while since this tennis stuff. It's just 
I don't know. It's a bit tiring, but for me, yeah, I'm 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 still kind of trying to find my feet about what I like to do. Um, I can still be somewhat of a workaholic, I guess. And when I mean workaholic, I'm I'm riding like like a man possessed. I just have a lot of sort of ideas, I guess, and thoughts and stuff I'm reflecting on from the past. So it kind of comes out in a way that is somewhat a bit uncontrollable, and I'm just sort of going with it. Um, yeah, so that's that's probably it, man. Well, Todd, I'd, I'd just like to thank you so much for joining me on the show. It's been, I want to say a pleasure, but it's more been eye-opening, I guess, to have a little uh, snippet into your life and I guess almost the dangers for other people that might come about if, you know, you choose, If I don't even know how to word this, but if, if parents <laughs> go, go down that path of coaching, it can just lead to, it can lead to uh, just a disaster, really. Uh, and, I mean, I'd just like to thank you so much for, for sharing your story. It wouldn't have been easy, but I really hope that it can educate people and also help change the course of people who are listening to, to this episode, to, to their lives, if, they are, if they're in this landscape. Yeah, I, I, I hope it does help someone because that's kind of my whole belief, I think, hopefully by getting it out. And just putting it more out there, I think that hopefully it does something. Todd, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a pleasure and I look forward to catching up soon. I'd love to do this again, maybe further down the track and catch up with you again and see how you're tracking. Oh, good. Thanks very much. Thank you so much for tuning into the first episode of season two of Aussies Only. Once again, I'd like to thank Todd for joining me today and being prepared to reveal all the details of his journey. I hope you enjoyed the show and can genuinely take something away from listening to Todd's story. This episode was brought to you by Latua Tennis. Head over to latuatennis.com to get your hands on the hottest tennis apparel on the market. And remember to subscribe to The First Serve on your preferred podcast platform for more. Subscribe to The First Serve via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your preferred podcast platform to listen at your convenience to all our weekly content, including past editions of Aussies Only, as well as our dedicated commercial radio program each Monday on SEN that you may have missed at 7pm Eastern. Crunching the numbers and in the huddle produced by Study and Play USA. Subscribe to The First Serve, your home of tennis. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply.